What's up guys? My name is Josh McEwen. Let me be the first to welcome you to ABC Church Online. We have a bunch of different groups starting over the course of the next month, starting with our Connections class. Connections is all about getting plugged in to how you can be part of the ABC community. We also have a group called Alpha. That is for young adults with questions about their faith. And that's a structured in a way that you can come, ask any questions, and be able to wrestle with doubts within Christianity. In addition, we have something called Grandparenting Matters, which is how to intentionally grandparent and invest in your grandchildren. Lastly, we have FPU, which is Financial Peace University, which is all about managing your money in biblical ways. Lastly, uh, we've been talking about this a lot in youth ministry. We actually uh, asked for a ton of prayer and covering over our LA Mission Service experience, and it was an amazing success. We got to work with uh, three separate organizations, Watts Powerhouse Church, Union Rescue Mission, and LA Mission, where we took 15 students down to interact and love on the homeless populations within those organizations. It was a huge blessing. It felt like there was momentum in our youth ministry to get back into serving like Jesus would um, in our day today. So thank you again for your prayers and covering us on that trip. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the service, and thanks for joining us today. Peace. Good morning. Welcome to ABC. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, just by way of reminder, um, we love it when our church gathers on campus on Sunday mornings. And so if you haven't made it down to church for whatever reason, um, come on down. We have services at 8 o'clock, at 9 o'clock, and 1045. Um, if you're traveling this weekend or maybe you're homesick, um, we're missing you. Sorry that you're not able to come, but really glad you can um, stay uh, with our series and continue to dive into God's Word with us over the video. So glad you could tune in here with us and, and that you're here. I wanted to mention in two weeks, um, we are going to have a, what we call our annual meeting, and it's going to be combined with our State of the Church service on Sunday, February 5th. Um, one of the um, requirements of members at ABC or one of the purposes and roles of members at ABC is to vote to affirm our elder board. That's really important because we're an elder-led church. Um, the elders really um, chart the course and the vision um, for where we go. And uh, those elders are voted and placed by our membership. And so it's one of the primary roles of a member at ABC. And so uh, in two weeks, we have two of our elders um, whose term is up and they're gonna be up for renewal. So there'll be a ballot. And on that ballot, um, you'll find the name Dennis Swanson and Jeff Zippy. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Dennis and Jeff um, so that you know who they are and then give you an opportunity to reach out to them if you're interested in getting to know them, if you don't know them already. Um, so Dennis has been a longtime member of ABC. He and his wife, Deborah have been here for many, many years, um, served in a variety of capacities. They've led small groups, um, Bible studies, uh, mission trips. Um, and currently, Dennis and Deborah both um, lead our young adult life uh, Bible study group that happens on Sunday evenings. Um, and that's a kind of a 24 to 31, 32 year old group. Um, they do a lot of activities together. They do, um, they do a Bible study every week. They do a kind of accountability and prayer time with split genders. Um, just a fantastic ministry. And Dennis has been doing that for years. And then uh, Dennis also serves on our worship team. You'll see him singing on Sunday mornings, um, occasionally with our worship team. And so uh, he's um, a servant of our church, and we're grateful to have him. So that's Dennis. And then Jeff Zippy, Jeff and his wife, Chris, have also been here for many, many years. 
Um, and Jeff has served in a variety of capacities. Um, many of you who are, grew up in Atascadero, you might remember him as Mr. Zippy from North County Christian School. Um, Jeff taught over there at North County Christian, um, but has an amazing uh, biblical pedigree, um, really knows God's word, has spent time at seminary, um, even went to Labrie Institute um, over there um, in Europe, and uh, Jeff continues to invest in our young adult community as well. Um, he's mentored a lot of our church leadership project students um, and is involved with a variety of, of Bible studies, serves um, occasionally in our crew. So you'll see Jeff in and around of ABC as well. Um, introduce yourself to him if you'd like, or um, reach out to him if you'd like to connect and get to know him more. But both of those guys will need a vote from our members on February 5th. So wanted to just let you know about that. Um, and we're going to jump right back into our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we start off um, in chapter 11 this morning, um, Jesus is going to introduce um, this concept of the goat. You guys know the goat, the greatest of all time. It's, it's pretty funny because I was reading an article um, maybe a week or two ago um, by NPR that said there's their top 10 terms that they hope will retire or ban in 2023. And they were terms that you'd totally expect to be on the list, like gaslighting. They're like, can we please never say gaslighting again? Um, I mean, who knows what that means anyway, right? So gaslighting is on the list. Uh, irregardless is on the list, which cracks me up because uh, regardless of how you use the word irregardless, it's probably used in the double negative either way. And so you're twisting it around backwards. I don't know, I'll let you figure that out. But irregardless, that one should never be used again. But the number one word on the list of words that we should ban or discontinue for 2023 was the term goat, the greatest of all time. And I think we could all agree, maybe that word is overused and is it possible to really be the greatest of all time? Because as soon as someone's the greatest of all time, then someone's right there in their wake to come up and become the greatest over them. And it's constantly changing. And so we throw around this term goat Maybe you're, uh, you know, done and over it as well, and you just wish that we'd never say goat again. But the point, the truth is that we are, as a people group, as the human race, obsessed with greatness. There's just no two ways around it. I mean, you go back, look back thousands of years in history, we've always been enamored with great competitors, people that are good at what they do. We love to watch the World Cup in soccer. It's why people are so excited to see a Lionel Messi finally win the World Cup because he's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. If anybody deserves to have a World Cup title, it's Lionel Messi. We love to see people who are great at what they do. That's why the Super Bowl is still the top televised event in the United States every year with like 100 million viewers. The only thing that surpasses the... the uh, the Super Bowl is the opening ceremonies for the Olympics. There's like two billion people watch that every year because we love competition. We love to see people who are good at what they do. We wanna know who's the best. Now, maybe you would argue that you're not as obsessed as the rest of the world with the greatest of all time, or maybe you're not enamored by athletes and the sport of what they do and how they're better than the next person. And so you're not one of those people that's tuning in to the Super Bowl, but if I told you that Joanna Gaines was coming to ABC next week to do a seminar on home decor, there's a chance that you would wanna come meet Joanna Gaines because she's the best at what she does as a home decorator. Or if I told you Gordon Ramsay was cooking in our kitchen this afternoon and there was gonna be a church lunch, 
um, featuring his dishes, then you might show up for food because he's really good at cooking. We love it when people are good at what they do. But before we retire the word goat or the phrase goat, I think we do well to look at scripture and ask, what is Jesus after in this passage? Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he says this, pay close attention. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus literally calls John the Baptist the goat. There has never been someone born of a woman. Last time I checked, everybody was born of a woman to date. There's never been anyone born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. He's the goat. And in this sentence, as he defines what greatness is, and he'll continue to teach us about the life of John the Baptist here, Jesus redefines greatness. And I think we do well to pay close attention if he's gonna call somebody the goat, the greatest of all time, and redefine greatness, then it would be uh, helpful for us to understand who that is. It's an, an unlikely decision, choice, by the way. Like if you look at all the people that Jesus could have chosen to say like, yeah, he's the best guy. He's the, she's the best woman. I mean, I would likely think of maybe King David, like the fierce fighter, strong, strapping, like, but also had a heart after God. Or Queen Esther, she was an amazing woman. Why not choose Queen Esther? And not to mention some of the people that we're gonna come up against in the New Testament, Barnabas and the Apostle Paul. These are amazing people, but Jesus chooses the most unlikely candidate, the guy who ate crickets in the wilderness, John the Baptist, the goat. So join me in Matthew chapter 11 as we read this passage and try to understand why would Jesus say, John the Baptist is the greatest of all time. I wanna give you some context by just reading these first few verses, then we'll jump into the rest of the passage in a couple minutes. So Matthew chapter 11, verse one says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, so we learn a couple things about John. We're gonna learn some more about John but he has apparently disciples and he's in prison and he sends word to Jesus to find out, are you the one that we were promised? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus sends back this message and says, tell them what you see. Tell them of the amazing work that you see to affirm and confirm to John that yes, I in fact am the one. But we learn a little bit about who John is here and I wanna give you some context from other places in scripture so we can kind of answer the question, who is this John the Baptist that's talking or inquiring of Jesus? And first we find that he was prophesied about in the Old Testament. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 40, there's actually a prophecy that there was gonna be one who was coming to speak or pave the way for Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40 verse three says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah says there will come a prophet in the future who will come crying out, make way for the Lord, 
pave the way for the coming Messiah, the coming King. He's going to precede the Messiah. So when this prophet comes, you know that there's a Messiah coming behind him, and that was John the Baptist. Earlier in the Gospels, we learn that John the Baptist was actually born of Zechariah and Elizabeth, an older couple who had been barren, who hadn't been given children, who prayed and desired for children. Zechariah was a priest, um, come from Levite tradition. And one day, Zechariah was doing his priestly duty, was performing his task in the temple. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And so John came through Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you read that language of Luke chapter 1, it's sort of akin to the same kind of language that came to Mary and Joseph telling them that Jesus was going to be given to them as a son. And it turns out that John the Baptist is, in fact, born as a cousin of Jesus. Apparently, Elizabeth was the cousin of Mary, or Elizabeth was the aunt of Mary. There's some close family connection. They were both from the line of Jesse. And so these two are cousins, familiar, related. In fact, there's a fun story. Also, in Luke, you keep reading through that chapter. You, you see this scene where Mary comes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And when she comes into the room with Jesus in the womb, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, leapt for joy in the womb, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you see this kind of really intimate connection between Jesus and John, even from before their birth. Later on, Matthew and Mark are both going to refer to John as the voice calling in the wilderness, and people will flood the wilderness. They'll go out to see and to hear John. They're going to be attracted to the message that he's sharing. They're going to go north of Jerusalem up to the Jordan, compelled by his message, and he's going to begin baptizing people, which is why he gets the name John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And in our passage this morning, we learned that John's now gained a following. He's got disciples, people who are committed to becoming like him. They want to learn from him, be mentored by him. And then we also learn that John is, in fact, in prison, which is a story we don't have a lot of time to go into, but the bottom line is he was bold and preached against Herod's his unfaithfulness and and basically taking his brother's wife. And so John was thrown into prison. And that brings us up to this passage that Jesus uh, speaks this profound word about the goat. So we understand now this was a prophet that was sent by God that was prophesied about in Isaiah that apparently was um, born to the cousin of the mother of Jesus. And he begins preaching in the wilderness and people are flocking to him. And then here's what Jesus says about John the Baptist if we keep reading the passage. Matthew 11, verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Jesus is here affirming the fact that John was a prophet sent by God. 
And then he goes on to say, verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus here is redefining greatness. He puts John up as a shining example. He says he's the one calling in the wilderness. He's the one that was prophesied. He's the one that's paving the way. And there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But he says, there is no one greater on earth, but the least in heaven is greater even still than John the Baptist. And he's again turning this kingdom upside down and saying, he who is least shall be the greatest. Least in the kingdom of heaven is greatest on earth. And the greatest on earth being John the Baptist is still not as great as the least of the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to shape our view of what greatness looks like. He's reshaping it because we've been formed by the world we live in to believe that greatness means you're an excellent athlete. Or to be great means that you're really smart, smarter than the next guy. Or to be great means that you have notoriety or fame, that you've got money or influence, that you've got some kind of power. That's what greatness looks like to us. It's why we would use the term the greatest of all time, most influential, most athletic, most popular, best at their trade, the goat. And Jesus is redefining that for us. I want to look at some of the character traits of John the Baptist. I want to look at what Jesus would define as greatness here as he describes John the Baptist together so we can kind of unfold what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And the first thing is character. Jesus is concerned, God is concerned about our character more than our performance. In John's case, his character was formed and shaped in solitude. It was crafted in obscurity. John didn't spend his entire childhood and lifetime leading up in the public eye with popularity and and fame. No, John lived in obscurity. In fact, in Matthew chapter three, it says he's the one spoken of, the prophet Isaiah, the voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And it goes on to say that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. He was a crazy wilderness survivalist, living in obscurity, living in solitude, allowing for his character to be developed in private. This is one of my greatest grievances or fears, maybe is a better word, for our current generation, the the world, the society that we live in today, is that character is not crafted in solitude. It's not crafted in private anymore. That from a very young age, the the young people that are coming up, our children and, and teenagers and young people today that are coming up into the world that we live in, their entire life is lived on display. All of the character that's built or crafted is crafted in public. The lifestyle would say, the world would say, look at me, look at what I can do, look at what I made, look at what I eat, 
Look at how I can perform. And there's a constant public view looking at every single one of our young people and their character doesn't have the opportunity to be crafted in private or crafted in solitude or in obscurity. And so it's crafted then by the pressures of what the world wants to see or wants to see them be. And I I think Jesus would say, greatness is not built on a social media platform. Greatness is not built in a public eye. Greatness is not built by pleasing men. It's built in obscurity. It's crafted in private, which leads to discipline. And you see John, multiple examples of John being an incredibly disciplined person. In fact, to live off the land requires discipline. But but even beyond that, before his birth, his parents were called to treat him different than any other kid. In fact, it says that he must not drink. This is Luke chapter one, verse 15. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So from a very young age, God set him apart. Just like his father was set apart as a priest. This has some some language that appears in the Old Testament uh, having to do with the Nazarite vow. We don't know if John was a Nazarite Um, or a Nazarene, you could call it, um, because that involves some other layers of discipline, like not cutting your hair and other things. We don't know anything about John's hair. But it looks like he had a set-apart, set-aside lifestyle that was requiring a great degree of discipline. With John, his character lends itself to obedience. And you might ask, well, how, how do we know John was being obedient? I mean, he's in prison, he's sending his disciples, and he's processing through all this stuff. There's not a lot that we know about the actual life of John other than this brief window of his ministry before he dies. But if you look closely, you can get some clues. In fact, John chapter 1, when John the Baptist is having this conversation about Jesus and with Jesus, you start to understand some of his intention and motive. Here's what he says during the baptism of Jesus. He says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John says very clearly that it was God who sent him to baptize. It wasn't his idea. He didn't make up baptism. He didn't decide just to go wandering in the wilderness, live off the land, and then all of a sudden decide to start preaching repentance and and think to himself, you know what would be a good idea? Is to start dunking people in the Jordan. That's a good idea. No, that wasn't John's idea. He was instructed by God to do it. And reminder that this was not a normal practice. It's not like the day and age we grew up in in the church where it was sort of normal to see people go underwater as a baptism. This was a totally new concept. It, It was ancient, all the way back to the beginning of Israel where there was a cleansing ritual, but there wasn't ever a process where people would step into a river and someone would say, in order that you could repent and receive healing, I'm going to dunk your head under the water. No, John was obedient to God in fulfilling the promise that he came to prepare the way of the coming Messiah. So he did it. It probably wasn't all that popular at first. But think about the first guy that he baptized. And he takes him down and he goes, okay, so I'm here to tell you there's going to be a Messiah that's coming. And so repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message John often preached. And he said, you know what we're going to do is I'm going to take you down to the river and, 
and I'm gonna hold you um, out into the water and I'm gonna dunk your head down and then lift you back up. You're gonna be okay, I'll make sure you don't drown, but just go with me on it, right? Imagine that moment, him describing that. No, this was obedience for John to fulfill what God had in mind. God's idea fulfilled by John out of obedience. And his obedient character ultimately was fulfilled by courage. So John's, John's character was crafted in solitude and, and then his character was led by obedience, but then ultimately fulfilled with courage. It's the second point there on the outline. For John to live off of the land, for him to call people to repentance and begin publicly baptizing people without really knowing who the Messiah was at that point, took a lot of guts. It took courage. And then we see him immediately when he begins his public ministry, we see him going after um, people like the Pharisees, tackles the patriarchy right out of the gate. Matthew chapter three, he calls them a brood of vipers, right to the religious leaders. You children of snakes, who told you to come out to the wilderness for repentance? You have no business here. Not long after that, he goes after the Roman authority in the area. He tackles Herod. And he says, you shouldn't have taken your brother's wife. Again, a you know, fascinating story, ultimately leading to John's death. I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but essentially Herod had decided he wanted what his brother had. He wanted his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. And so he stole Herodias from his brother Philip, took her as his own wife. And then the story goes on you know, to talk about how Herod was kind of entertaining these um, uh, just sort of orgy parties. And what happened is uh, eventually Herodias and her daughter asked for John's head on a platter, so they had him killed. So John ended up suffering his own death because of his willingness and courage to do the thing that God had called him to do. He gets involved with controversy no matter the cost. In fact, he did so with Jesus as well. John says of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 34, he says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now remember, we would expect John to say that, in fact. That makes sense. It lines up with everything we know of John the Baptist. But remember that that very statement, that Jesus was the Son of God, is the statement that got Jesus killed. It got him hung on the cross. It was the one thing that led him to a trial before Pilate. The fact that he claimed to be the son of God, infuriating religious leaders. So for John to be able to blatantly say that with confidence, this is the son of God, demonstrates his boldness and his courage and his willingness to, to obey and follow through with what God had called him to. Our definition of greatness, I think, is often watered down to political correctness. Who can do the right thing and please every party involved, right? Who can perform well and keep all of their constituents happy? That's what greatness looks like for us. And so we, we boil it down to political correctness. Well, don't say anything that's gonna upset people. Make sure you kind of keep, keep the people happy, right? That's what these sports figures and these um, musicians and these public figures, they have to do, the politicians, of course, they have to keep everybody 
happy. And I think biblical greatness, as we see it redefined here by Jesus, biblical greatness comes down to a contrast between pleasing God and pleasing man. You can't please God and please man. And I got to tell you guys, I struggle with this as much as anyone. I've spent probably half of my adult life worrying about what people think. Worrying about what, what they'll say if I do this or that or say this or that. And I've, I've realized as I kind of work through what does greatness looks like, look like for those who are following Christ in obedience is a release of the desire to keep everybody happy. Because I, I realize that keeping everyone happy, that doing all the things that everybody wants you to do, which means saying yes to a lot of things and not often saying no, will drive you insane and will keep you from being who God called you to, to be and doing what God has actually called you to do. So if I, if I could just encourage you, if that's you and you're, and you're watching and you're listening and kind of processing through, what would it mean to be a John the Baptist, the GOAT, the greatest of all time? I'll just encourage you to stop trying to please men. Release yourself from that pressure because you'll never be able to please everybody. Even if it's unpopular, have the courage to say no to some things, to know what's right and wrong for you to do, and work to please God above others. And I promise you, you will be a better child of God. You will be a better friend, a roommate, a brother, sister, son, daughter. You can move towards biblical greatness when you try to please God more than men. And along with courage that John the Baptist has, comes vision. And I want to talk about his vision for a minute because he does come as a prophet. And so we can kind of confuse, I think, prophecy and vision. And I want to be very clear about that this morning, that when John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, he understands that there was prophecy back in Isaiah about him. But I think more importantly, he sees what no one else sees. He sees the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, but he also sees the fact that God is going to make good on his promise. He believed what no one else believed. And I realize as you see John the Baptist's life play out, that his vision really was simply to believe that God would fulfill the promise, which means that his vision was rooted in his faith. That it was faith that beget vision, not vision that beget faith. I think we get that backwards sometimes. I think if I could just believe enough, if I could just have enough faith, then I could have vision. No, it's vision to believe that God is going to do what he says he'll do. To be great in God's economy requires vision and to have vision, we need a faith that God will come through. Don't confuse vision with prediction. Another mistake I think we make is in order to be a visionary person, a visionary leader, well, I've got to have prediction. I need to know what's going to happen, what the world is going to do or where so-and-so is going to go or what decision is going to be the right decision. And I don't see that, again, being biblical other than the actual Old Testament prophecy. The vision is not necessarily prediction. John's prophecy wasn't to predict the coming of the Messiah John's prophecy was to believe that there was a coming Messiah. And I think we're weary of vision because we've misused the term. You'd hear people say, I have a vision. One of the greatest mistakes I think we make is to put the letter A in front of the word vision. A vision is different than having vision. 
and yes, we can have a vision. God can give us a vision, but I think more often it's about us having the vision to believe God's gonna do what he said he would do. And so we look to the promises of the New Testament for vision and we realize that God has made a whole lot of promises to us. He's made a whole lot of promises to the church, to his children, to the world. And as we look to his promises, we can get vision for what he will do. Promises like comfort. God has promised us comfort. Promises like the Holy Spirit. He promised to send us a helper. Promises like forgiveness. Promises like providence. God will be faithful to provide. Promises like the, the victory of his church. The gates of hell will not overcome it. Promises like heirship or sonship, daughtership of the king. Promises like good works. God has promised to do good for his people. Great vision isn't worldly greatness. It's not having a vision of accomplishing something in this world. I don't think that's greatness. I don't think that's great vision. Great vision is godly faith. It's saying things like, I have a vision to walk through doors believing that God will follow through with what he said. I have a vision to lead others through their pain, believing that he will comfort them. I have faith to believe that he's gonna follow through on that. I have vision to forgive because God says forgiveness leads to repentance. I have a vision to believe that God will do what he said he'll do and so I'll faithfully follow through. That's the kind of vision that John had. And it redefines greatness. Because it's not about accomplishing something that others will hear about or see or write about or will end up in the history book someday. That's worldly greatness. No, godly greatness is having a vision to believe that God's gonna do what he said he would do irrespective of how I follow through. Jesus redefines greatness by humbling the proud. And the final thing I see in John's character is humility. In John 3, there's a prime example of worldly greatness John's disciples come to him and they say, look, John, we're a little concerned. A lot of the people that were following you are now going to Jesus. They call him the one who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. And they say, look, John, he's baptizing now. And all of them are going to him. We got to do some crisis management, John. They're leaving. And John simply says this. Here's how he responds. John chapter 3, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And this is what he says. Listen to John's words in John chapter 3. Therefore, this joy is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. That is the testimony of greatness in biblical terms. He must increase, I must decrease. You wanna be great? You wanna be the goat? Then make little of yourself. Decrease, get out of the way, back up, fade into oblivion. John says, look, I came from obscurity and it's gonna be time for me to disappear back into obscurity. I honestly believe 
that John probably didn't think his name would appear in any history book or in any gospel context, that he came to do what he had to do and then he got out of the way. And I honestly think he was okay with that. Man, that's hard. It's hard for me to think about, man, someday no one's going to remember my name, that anything I did or worked for or tried to accomplish or obeyed and, and succeeded in is going to be remembered, but only Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. Greatness is redefined, and it doesn't include notoriety. Some of the goats, the greatest of all time in my mind, are the people that are well-equipped to do the job that they've been trained to do, and they know when to do their job and when to be finished. It's people like septic tank operators, right? Like when there's a time for a septic operator, you need them now and you need them to be good at their job. And they show up and they do their job and then they disappear and you never hear from them again. You're typically not like your buddies with the septic guy, right? He only comes when you need him to come. It's not like the mailman. You know the mailman's name, you know? Hopefully you do anyway. It's people like first responders. They're trained, they're equipped well to do the job that they need to do, and when the time is right, when they are needed, they show up, they do their job well, and then they disappear. In fact, if you see an interview with a first responder, oftentimes like on the news, you'll hear somebody say something like this, I just was doing what I was trained to do. I was just doing my job. And they disappear, never to be mentioned of or heard of again. That's genuine greatness in my mind like the UPS driver at Christmas, right? They've got a job to do, they're gonna get it done and then they're gonna get out of there. And man, I feel for those guys. We're so grateful for how hard they work. Genuine humility comes in established character. Character that's been coded in courage. Courage that ultimately is, is gonna be dripping in humility that's gonna lend itself to vision, a faithful vision. Humility is believing that the only thing extraordinary about me is the extraordinary work of God. And here's where I think biblical greatness becomes defined, that when we believe our job is only to point people to Jesus and to elevate Jesus, we become great. I think John was called the greatest of all time, the goat, because he knew he had one job, and that one job, that life goal for John was to elevate Jesus and then to disappear. And he did it well. I want to just conclude with the final verse of this passage um, that we didn't quite get to yet. Matthew chapter 11, verse 18 says, this is Jesus still talking, says, For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is saying, look, you're not going to please everybody. John came not eating or drinking. And they said, oh, he, he doesn't have to eat or drink. He must have a demon. And then Jesus came eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. And say, look at him. He's a glutton. You will not please everyone. You're going to upset somebody. He's very clear. You can't win in the world's eyes. You will never achieve greatness, at least not sustained greatness. No matter what you do, you'll have a critic. You may never be called greatest of all time by the world. It's impossible to please God and please men. But the greatest of all time, according to Jesus, 
was a man whose character was developed in obscurity, a man who was confident and courageous, a man who had vision, and a man who had enough humility to know when to get out of the way. That's greatness. But to the world, he was just a weirdo who ate crickets. Redefine greatness the way Jesus is defining it through John. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us redefine greatness. The reality is, Lord, some of us are going to see the evidence here. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'll be tempted by this to see this and to know that, yes, there is a call to greatness. And yet I'll go and still desire and pine for the attention of man and for the aspirations of the world because the pull is so strong. So I got to ask that you would release us from that in a spiritual sense. God, would you release us from the burden of pleasing the world? God, give us greatness redefined. Develop our character in private when no one's looking. God, continue to teach us to be people of courage, to stand up for what we know we believe in, even if it offends others. God, make us people of vision that we would believe and, and, and hold fast to the faith that you're going to follow through. And then God, make us people of humility with a willingness to disappear and to fade into the background the way John the Baptist did with such grace. Lord, make us people of kingdom greatness. Redefined. In your precious name I pray. Amen.